Welcome back to the program. Ever since the Iranian hostage crisis in November of 1979, political and diplomatic relations between the United States and Iran have been irreparably ruptured. Thirty years later, three young Americans would be hiking near the Iraq-Iran border. They would be captured, accused of espionage, transferred to Iran's most notorious prison, and held sometimes for long periods in solitary confinement. Their story is a cautionary reminder of the complexities of politics in the Middle East and, most importantly, of the human face of news stories from the region that have, after 30-plus years and all that has transpired during that time, had an almost numbing effect on us. It's impossible, though, to be numbed by the political reality after hearing the story of Shane Bauer, Joshua Fattel, and Sarah Shord. It is my pleasure to welcome all three of them to the program today to talk about their book, A Sliver of Light, Three Americans Imprisoned in Iran. Shane, Joshua, Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having, thanks for having us. Great to have you all here. Shane, let's begin with you. One of the questions that, that people so often ask when they hear this story, how did this come to pass? Where were you hiking? Why were you there? What was going on? Let's start there. Okay. Well, uh, Sarah and I were living in Syria at the time, and I had spent a few years in the Middle East uh, studying Arabic initially and then working as a journalist, and Sarah was was teaching English and and writing. And uh, Josh and another friend, Sean McFessel, came to visit us, and we decided to take a trip. Uh, We we decided to go to Iraqi Kurdistan, um, where there's, you know, Iraqi Kurdistan is is kind of an autonomous region within Iraq. Uh, No American has ever been hurt there. It actually has about two million tourists that go there a year. And uh, in 2009, sorry, in 2011, it was on the New York Times uh, top 41 places to visit in the world. Uh, so we we went there and we asked our hotel manager uh, if there was a place we could get out of the city, um, you know, just kind of uh, get out. And we he recommended this uh, waterfall area uh, called Ahmedawa, and we went there. And there were hundreds of people, Kurdish families, camping out, and and we we camped there for the night. And then in the morning, we we went on a hike up a trail, and we hiked for about five hours. And uh, when we neared the top of the uh, the mountain, uh, we saw a couple of soldiers, and they kind of called us over to them. And when we got to them, we we found out that they were Iranian, uh, and we were we 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 had no idea that we were that close to the Iranian border. Sarah, what happened after that? Well, after that, we um, we spent several hours with those soldiers detained at the border, and they kept telling us not to worry, and one of the soldiers actually made it very clear that he agreed with me that we'd been called across the border, that we didn't enter Iran willingly. Um, and eventually they forced us into their jeep and drove us into Tehran, and the next few days were a blur of traveling across often beautiful landscapes, but um, frightening at the time because it was just so disoriented, disorienting, and we didn't know where we were going. They kept saying we were going back to Iraq, but eventually we arrived in Tehran, where we were driven to Azim prison, torn apart, and thrown into solitary cells. Talk a little bit about the questions that you were asked, Sarah, because there is a sense that you talk about that if it wasn't so serious, it was almost laughable at a certain point. Yeah, it was like a theater of the absurd. Um, there were times when they asked me to recite Walt Whitman to prove that I was an English major, and my interrogator would recite poetry back to, you know, show off his knowledge of English literature. 
and they asked me to draw a picture of the Pentagon. And I said, I've never been to the Pentagon. And they said, well, just the lobby. Tell us what the lobby looks like. And I said, I've never been to the lobby of the Pentagon. <laughs> and they, they said, well, that's just absurd, Sarah. You're a teacher. All educated people in the United States go to the Pentagon. And after writing just, you know, like reams and reams of paper, just writing my whole life story, they would tear up what I'd written and throw it at my feet and tell me to, to start again. Josh, did you get a sense that they knew anything about any of you, that they had done any research once they had your names, that they had any information at all? Well, from the, from the beginning, they were, they were uh, sort of some people made clear that they, you know, they were suspicious of us, but they wanted to use us for political purposes. And after a while, they said, you know, we know you're not spies, but this is for political purposes. They had our email, um, you know, I gave them my email password after sitting in solitary for a bit. And, you know, they're going through everything. And I was trying to hide at first that I, um, I'm Jewish and I have um, Israeli heritage. My father's Israeli. And, you know, I just thought I didn't want to do anything. I didn't want to say anything to you know, potentially make my play worse and just hedge my bets. Um, and they, uh, but they knew they were looking through my email and they had a sense uh, of my heritage. Luckily, though, I wasn't ultimately treated differently for it, given the same food, time outside, and punishment. Shane, talk a little bit about your initial reaction to all of this. How you thought this was going to play out? Did you think this was temporary? Did you think you were in really long-term trouble? Talk about that. No, I, I really didn't uh, think that we were in long-term trouble. I thought, you know, we would be taken down off this mountain, questioned, and everything would kind of be cleared up. Iran wouldn't want to get itself into kind of an international scandal. You know, we would be kind of quietly driven back over to Iraq and, and let go. And as time went on, you know, that didn't happen. But we, there were, we always, I always kind of thought that, it was. It could never go on another month. I remember one time my interrogator saying, uh, you know, uh, suggesting that I could be there, there another another month, and I just went ballistic. You know, I, I was thought it was outrageous. Were you angry? And did the guard sense any of that? Talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, was very angry, and uh, and also, you know, I also had a sense once once my interrogator told me that that a uh, situation had become political and that he knew we were spies, but we were being held anyway. You know, I felt like um, we were hostages. They, they told us they wanted to do a prisoner exchange and, and having, knowing that kind of gave us all a sense of power in a way within the prison uh, where we could, you know, kind of express our anger and push the limits, try to get better conditions in a way that the Iranian political prisoners that we were there with couldn't, you know, they, a lot of them were, were beaten and, you know, we felt like we were we were kind of protected in a way. To what extent, Sarah, did you think about previous the previous Iranian hostage crisis where people were held for over 400 days? And to what extent was knowledge of that any kind of an indicator of what might happen? Well, I thought about it. I questioned my interrogators about it. And um, I didn't know at the time that that was 444 days. I knew... That it was a little over a year, so for a long time that became the longest possible time I could imagine our, our ordeal lasting. And I was, in fact, released after 410 days the whole time in solitary confinement, which is just shy of how long the 79 hostages were held. And of course, Shane and Josh exceeded that period um, 
by, by a long shot. Josh, talk a little bit about the contact that the three of you had with each other when you were being held. Well, at first, it was all secret. And, you know, once I, I, st- I found a pen in the vent, and, um, and, and then I realized how wonderful it was to have just the capacity to write slowly on tissue paper to myself, just so I could see my own thoughts and have a conver- some sort of conversation while I was in solitary. And, and so then I, um, on the way to my 30 minutes in the courtyard, I stole a pen from uh, a guard so that I could give one to uh, Shane who had passed notes back and forth um, while we were in solitary, just for a little bit until they caught us and punished us. But that that became a lifeline, and then eventually we started seeing each other and having time in that courtyard for a half hour, hour a day together, and we would do everything we could to keep our... Uh, keep our spirits up. I mean, we, I remember trying to celebrate every holiday we could think of. Uh, so like Jewish holidays, like Passover to, um, you know, to Ash Wednesday and Easter, as well as Persian holidays, like their new year and, and, um, and, and, and things like that. So we, that was a way for us to come together. It was like a 30 minute relief of, um, of the, of the total isolation to, uh, to have three of us together, and of course we were still well isolated from everybody, um, all the other Iranians. Sarah, talk a little bit about being held in solitary, and and it's so powerful as you write about it, the impact that that had on you. Yeah, um, well, nothing could have prepared me for the the mental and 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 really also physical anguish of solitary confinement. I like one way to, to describe it, and it's very hard to describe, is that it feels like a slow death, like you're losing connection with everything from the outside world daily. Your world is shrinking, and you're shrinking, and you're becoming internally the same as the four white walls around you. There were, it, re- it reduces you to an animal-like state. I spent a lot of time pacing compulsively in my cell. Actually, prisoners that I've talked to in this country often pace their cells so much over the years that they wear a path in a concrete floor. Um, I spent hours crouched by the food slot in my cell door just listening for any kind of sounds to orient myself, and my whole day was geared towards the time that I'd be let out into the open-air cell, and I would see Shane and Josh. They were my lifeline. Um, There were times that I screamed and beat at the walls of my cell and lost you know, nearly lost my sanity, but I always was able to bring it back and just keep resisting my conditions and keep fighting for my own humanity. You tell the story of of waking up one night thinking that you were hearing screaming. Yeah, I um, that was shortly after I found out that Shane and Josh were put together in one cell. And of course, I wanted to be happy for them, but I had to fight my own inner demons. I had to fight a tremendous... I mean, jealousy doesn't even feel like the right word for it. Um, I just felt basically like I'd been left to go crazy. And um, I didn't know if I'd make it through. I didn't know if I'd ever be myself again. And I had to fight that jealousy because I loved Shane and Josh, and I knew that it wasn't their fault, and they had no control over any of these decisions. So that day was the lowest point for me, and I heard this screaming, and I thought, I just wanted to stop, and I covered my ears, and I... I thought it was another prisoner in another cell a few corridors away. And then a guard burst into my cell and started shaking me, and I realized that I'd been screaming. Shane, talk a little bit about at what point 
that you realized that you were going to be there a while, the sense of realizing that, that you were going to be a political prisoner and that you weren't getting out the next day or the day after or the day after that? Well, really, it was as soon as, as my interrogator, you know, told me that, that we weren't spies and that, that he knew we weren't spies and that we would have to wait. Um, and there were many stages, you know, after that where it just felt like our situation was lengthening. Sometimes even, you know, we would hear on TV, um, you know, somebody from, from the United States government uh, kind of demanding our release. And whenever we, we would hear that, it, it would actually feel like that meant that we were going to spend more time because, you know, the way that the, these interactions were happening between Iran and the United States was, um, was, was pretty hostile. And, you know, we knew that the only way we were going to get out uh, was through some kind of, uh, you know, diplomacy. So if we would hear kind of these kind of forceful demands, it would just feel like, okay, now Iran's going to refuse and we're just going to be sitting in here longer and even, you know, when we, we, we would hear news about nuclear negotiations, if there were setbacks, any kind of, you know, political tensions would always make, make us feel like, uh, you know, it was extending our, our detention. How much did you know about what was taking place on the outside in the efforts to get you out, Shane? Uh, well, we, we got letters from, from family, from immediate family. Uh, sometimes we had to hunger strike to get those letters, but they would tell us, you know, some of what they were doing, um, not always in the, you know, small details because they knew that the letters were being read, but uh, we did have a sense from them. And also other prisoners would tell us uh, that, you know, if they were new, new arrivals to the prison, they would tell us about seeing our, our moms on TV or, or hearing about our case. So we did have a sense that there was uh, kind of an international campaign going on for us. Sarah, you talk about one relationship, one woman in prison who had seen your family on television, somebody that, that you developed a relationship with in prison that ultimately was executed after, long after you left the prison. Yeah, that's, um, she's a Dutch-Iranian dual national, um, Zahra Bahrami, and um, it, was, she, it was an incredible experience um, getting to know Zahra. We we found a secret clandestine way to pass notes to each other by by balling up our notes inside a maxi pad and making the maxi pad look soiled soiled or used by putting some beef stew on it and letting it dry and hiding it in the bathroom trash. And we would mostly just dream about meeting each other in the Netherlands, going dancing together, talking for days and days at a time and becoming best friends. And, and she would say, Sarah, Iranian people don't hate you. Please don't hate us. We... You know, we are against our government. We're ashamed of what they're doing. Talk a little bit, Josh, about your contacts with other prisoners and what you learned from them, to what extent they were political prisoners, what you learned about the country and what was going on from those in prison. Yeah, there was a, there was a spot I'd go, and I, I would, um, there was a room that I would go in so that Shane and Sarah could be alone for a little bit, uh, once or twice a week. And in that room, it was next to the bathroom uh, that I could, uh, when I heard heard someone in the bathroom, I would push open the window and have a short short conversation. One of the guys, um, you know, it was a mix. We were in the political ward of the Vien prison. And so everyone there was there for some type of political purpose. But that really was uh, broad-ranging. You know, there was one guy who was in prison for converting from Islam to Christianity. There was... Uh, Another professor there from England who um, 
was in prison. He had come back to go to his mother's funeral, and he was in prison because he, uh, you know, they weren't sure about what his political stance was, what he was saying in England. But I also met students. You know, one of my one of the um, closer bonds I had was with a was with a student, and I would I knew I might meet him, so I would like stash up with candies and uh, slip them to him through the window, and and he would. Um, tell me a little bit about himself. He would. He said that he was uh, a student. He had been corresponding with uh, other inter- with international students and had been a uh, you know, dissident from the regime. And it was part of. We were detained there just a month after, you know, one of the, lar- the largest protests that the the government of Iran had uh, experienced since 1979. And so they were rounding up people to uh, throw in prison for those. Uh, those protests and the protests continued for a bunch of months because really, like Sarah said, you know, the the, the difference between the people and the government uh, was quite um, stark for us because you know the the guards and interrogators were um, the ones representing the regime, and then the prisoners who were whispering to us were the um, the protesters. And just a short little another short little anecdote. I mean, we met all sorts of people in that prison. One of which was. Uh, um, um, a member of Al Qaeda, hmm. and he, um, he he was from those mountains of Kurdistan that we were uh, arrested in, and he said, uh, you know, he had heard about our case, and he just said, you know, I know you're innocent, and I really just um, pray for your freedom. I hope you get free, which uh, you know, I couldn't, I I would never have expected, and felt like I was from a world away, uh, universes apart, but really. I had something common speaking through uh, through bars in Iranian prison. Josh, at one point they took you all out of prison to a hotel in Tehran to meet your mothers. Talk about that experience. Well, you know they they're trying they're, they were trying so hard to be um, you know media savvy and find a way to make themselves look good, so they let our parents come for a few hours, and that was about nine months into our detention, and, and by that point I had, we all had a total of five minutes on the phone uh, with them, otherwise there was no contact, and so being able to have some contact after so long was was, was rather amazing, just to be able to, like, give something to my mother, to be able to pour her a glass of water, or, like, peel her an orange, I felt like just something, some way to be able to share with her what she meant to me after knowing that our mother, my mother and our mothers together, and really our Families and networks of friends have had organized an international campaign for for a release that ultimately was to get us out. So those hours were precious, but it's it's uh, it, it was sort of um, almost typically typical in that it was a cruel gift, you know, being used as propaganda um, to show this sort of um, you know quote unquote compassion that they were getting, that the Iranian regime was giving us. Jane, talk a little bit about that, this sense of it both being a positive experience, but also knowing that you were being used as propaganda. Yeah, I remember when I saw my mom, I uh, I just, you know, hugged her and I actually slipped her a secret note that we had written uh, immediately. And But just, you know, being able to kind of hold each other like that, is, I felt like I was, was home for a little bit. And but the, there was a right after that there was this kind of awareness that uh, everything we were doing was kind of being used and it felt like a, kind of a cruel gift you know we were sat in front of the cameras and uh, and we were asked questions uh, by the international media and 
um, I, I felt this, you know, kind of internal control that they had over us where, you know, I was afraid to say anything that might uh, anger our interrogators because that could mean that any chance that we might have of getting free could be canceled. Um, so it was kind of a, you know, uh, it, in a sense, it, we were free to say anything we wanted. We had all the cameras on us, but we also really couldn't. Sarah, talk a little bit about being released ahead of Josh and Shane and what that was like for you. Well, I, I didn't want to go. I was furious at first when I found that I was going to be released first. Um, everything, those 14 long months, um, every minute of it was a shared experience. Even if I most of my time was alone in my cell, I knew that they were there. I could touch the wall and know that that wall was touching another wall that was eventually touching them. And um, it, I didn't want to go. But I knew when it hit me that... I could make a difference. I could help get them out. I was filled with a, a tremendous sense of purpose, something I've never felt again in my life to that degree. Um, and I hit the ground running. Uh, I I really used every minute to fight for them. I didn't taste my food. It was like I was just eating so that I could fuel this engine. And I knew that I would never slow down. I would never stop until they got out. Josh, to what extent did you ever think about escape? Yeah, I, that was one of the like first thoughts in, in uh, uh, the first month, how the heck can I get out of here? And I remember being blindfolded in the, in the courtyard area. And and uh, in those first weeks, the place where I was put to that courtyard actually had really low walls. And I was like, I'm athletic. I can just jump this and run. And the crazy part was that I felt like I had to, I had to like stop myself from doing it just because, you know, uh, you know, you lose sort of control of impulses at that point. You know, it's just like uh, I hadn't spoken to a human being for weeks. I hadn't, like, had uh, any compassionate, um, you know, conversation or communion in any way. And um, I almost, I just want, and then it, the thought became serious again at the end, where, like, when Shane and I were kind of, had spent two years in prison and we were like, there must be a way out. And we started scheming about um, ways to get out. And, you know, it just felt like even if we could uh, escape the prison, we would still be, um, you know, hundreds of miles from a border area. So we, uh, we, we, it was always a calculation against the sort of hope that something would be happening on the outside of which, you know, sometimes we get news from, but, too often we, we were left with incomplete knowledge of, of what was really happening out there. And Shane, you did get out of your cell at least one night and, and got into Sarah's. I did, yeah. Early on, uh, we'd been in prison for a few weeks, and uh, Sarah and I were celled next to each other in the very beginning, and there was an event that was connecting our cell. And one day, uh, a guard came and brought dinner, and he left the slot on my door open. And I reached out and felt realized that he left a key in the door. And uh, I asked Sarah if through the vent, if, you know, she would, if it was possible, if she would want me to come over in, into her cell. And she said, oh, of course. And, and then I said, okay, I'm doing it. And <laughs> we both got really nervous and, you know, sat for hours by the, you know, the edge of our door listening for sounds. And late at night, I reached my arm out and, and snuck over, uh, opened the door and snuck over to her cell. 
and talk a little bit about what may be the strangest proposal ever that you proposed to Sarah while you were in prison. <laughs> um, I, you know, while I was in solitary confinement, I thought a lot about my whole, my entire life and uh, became really clear what was the most important to me, you know, the, the people in my life that I love and I knew that I wanted to be with Sarah for the rest of my life. And I spent a lot of time imagining, you know, being, getting free and, and taking her to some kind of beautiful place and proposing to her. I didn't really want to do it in prison, but uh, that we start getting a, a kind of intimations that Sarah might be released before us, before Josh and I. And when, when, when I had that idea, I decided that I had to propose to her there because I didn't know when I would see her again. And I just, you know, I wanted her to know uh, what I wanted and for, to, for us to have that to kind of look forward to. And all three of you, Sarah, I want to start with you. When you today hear stories virtually every day about events in the Middle East, about Iran and what's happening in the region, how is that shaped by your experience? Yeah, there's no... There's no way to explain how different it is now when I hear about other people's tragedies. Um, I mean, I, I was always a social justice activist. I've always been considered myself to be a global citizen, and I keep very close track of the news. But when you hear about what happened in Afghanistan a couple of days ago, all these people celebrating the Persian New Year in a beautiful hotel with their families getting gunned down, those people, they're not just a number. Those are, I feel like how lucky I am to have gotten out, how many people don't get out, how many people get close to the end of their lives or never tasting freedom again and and simply never do, like my friend Zahra in prison and so many others. Josh? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the, the Middle East is, um, you know, it's changing so rapidly right now. And there's, after really decades of hostility between the two countries of which I found my life, you know, two years of my life stolen from me because of that, um, um, because of this mutual hostility between the U.S. and Iran. And there's a little opening right now where people, you know, a part of the U.S. government is actually looking to make peace and looking not just to not bomb Iran, but actually find a policy, uh, an orientation that doesn't lead to bombing in Iran, uh, you know, and, and, and Iran, too, is shifting. You know, they, had a, they have a new president who is, um, who is arguing with his government as well, saying, let's make peace, let's find a path to, um, to create relations with the U.S. that's not going to lead us to, you know, another, another disastrous war. So this moment... Um, of negotiations really needs as much support, and hopefully, the governments of both countries can catch up to, um, you know, the will the will of the people in both places that that really don't want to go to war and don't want to be on the path to war. So I'm hopeful that something can come out of these nuclear negotiations and something permanent can come out of it. You talk about losing two years of your life. Are you angry? And if so, at who? I mean, at, at different points in prison, I guess I I was angry at different um, different people, and I mean, I don't I don't carry around a chip on my shoulder around what happened to me. I I've been sort of lucky and um, 
supported so much since I've gotten out that I've been able to work through a lot of my anger. I feel like I, the anger that I've had, I like to uh, feel like I'm channeling it into something good. And for me, that's exactly what I was talking about in terms of, you know, a path forward where people, where these two countries can actually come to, uh, come to the table together. And we don't have to have a situation where everyday Americans or Americans who get, um, who, who hike in a place where they shouldn't, but whatever, uh, you know, where people aren't put at risk because our governments are fighting each other. And so I feel like, um, that this is, this is the first step in a long-term process where, I mean, where, um, you know, we can we can move past the pain that, that they've caused me and us and their families and and continue to cause uh, their own people, the Iranians, but move towards something where we're actually, um, you know, building a world where we respect each other and like each other and don't, um, aren't holding gripes and, and sort of long-term anger towards each other. And so I want to try, I want to model that. I want to be that myself as much as I can. And finally, Shane, how has this changed your worldview? Um, you know, I don't know if it's uh, drastically changed my worldview in any way necessarily. Uh, it's, you know, it's changed um, maybe my focus. Uh, my focus in my work as a journalist, um, I used to write a lot about the Middle East, and I, after being a prisoner for two years and wrongfully detained, it's made me uh, very attuned to uh, issues, prison issues in general, and you know, we, we have the largest prison population in the world in this country. And uh, so I've kind of felt compelled to kind of dig into that with the perspective of, of, of a prisoner. And one of the things that's interesting with respect to prisons is that most of the guards and most of the people there, Shane, were very aware of Guantanamo and what was going on there. Yeah, yeah, they were. There were times that I, you know, when I was in solitary confinement, I asked, my interior, my guards, you know, why, why are we still in solitary? Why won't you put us together? And one guard said to me, well, what about Guantanamo? How do our people in solitary in Guantanamo? And, you know, as the, after two years, we, we hadn't gone to trial and, uh, I, same thing, you know, I was constantly asking, when are we going to go to trial? If you think we're guilty, why don't you take us to trial? And a guard said to me, well, how long do people wait in Guantanamo without trial? And, you know, they're, there's people there that have been without trial for 10 years and that kind of, you know, gave, it didn't excuse what Iran did to us, but it kind of, in a sense, you know, uh, it's a reference point, you know, they encourage, encourages them in a way to, to act in kind. On occasion, you used it to your advantage. Yeah, there was, there was a time that we, uh, heard a prisoner being beaten and, uh, Josh and I got up and, and pounded on the door of our cell and, uh, the guard came running and he kind of said, you know, shut up. What do you, what do you want? What are you doing? And, uh, we said to him is, what is this Guantanamo? And he was so insulted by that. And we, we knew that that was a very insulting thing to say to them, uh, because in their mind, that was the worst possible prison in the world. And, uh, they stopped beating that man, uh, after that. Shane Bauer, Joshua Fattel, Sarah Shord, the book is A Sliver of Light, Three Americans Imprisoned in Iran. Shane, Joshua, Sarah, I thank all three of you for spending time with us today. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. We'll thank, t- thank you so much. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.